0: Hello, and welcome to Think Hard, the podcast where two trained philosophers think hard about the real world. I'm Danielle Sousa, I'm a philosophical coach and I teach at Portland Community College in Portland, Oregon. And with me today, as always, is my vivacious co-host, Jose Muniz
1: Hey everybody, I'm Jose Muniz and I teach at Lehman College in the Bronx.
0: So today we're gonna to talk about free speech. One of these things that is on a lot of people's minds these days, maybe a little bit more tenuous than it used to be. But first, I wanna give a little bit of feedback just from me, not even from a <laughs> listener. Because I listened to our last episode about. Wait a
1: minute, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> hold up. We can do that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's our show. We can do whatever we want. And okay. I'm here to say, I listened through that last episode on prostitution that we did. This is number 54 on the bodily fluids episode and you know I've been listening and thinking about that show and I feel like I just I feel like you kicked the pants off me on that one Jose. I feel like that (laughs) like I totally just tied myself in knots there and it's really gotten me reflecting and thinking about how like I'm not really sure what I think about anything. I feel much more (laughs) persuaded by your argument after listening to it and I'm in a little bit of like an existential crisis here. I feel like my Opinions are just too wishy-washy. I don't know what I think about them or about myself anymore. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Well, how
1: do you feel about that?
0: I don't know. I kind of want to maybe do an episode about it coming up, just the idea of like our intellectual positions Mm. and whether they change and how they change and how consistent they ought to be or not. And uh, I don't know. It's kind of got me into a little bit of a tailspin. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think about that?
1: I think I love to make fun of you. I think I like to make fun of you. I like to make fun of you for some things. But in general, I have a great deal of respect for your ability to turn where your cognitive capacities push you. Mm. And I think the twisting and the turning is, one, it's just a complicated issue. And two, I think there are some positions you're holding that you just need a little more time to bring out and articulate.
0: Mm, Maybe. I I
1: think it's one of those cases of the first draft is always a little rough. And Mm. I think that's true for both of us on that. I felt a little bad that I did not have a great answer for the distance problem. Mm. Why does physical intimacy make such a moral difference versus Uh, sex work that's at a distance Mm -hmm. there's a difference there obviously the space and the location but is it a difference that means anything seems a little wishy-washy so I think we we both have something to think about
0: yeah I agree it's hard it is hard thinking is hard (laughs) All right. Well, let's think about something new or very old, depending on how you do it. I feel like people have been talking and thinking about free speech for centuries now. So what kind of conversation do you want to bring to it today?
1: Well, Danielle, let's start with a question. Okay. Should we have an open mind towards opinions that we find morally disgusting? If I came to you and I said, Mm. hey, Danielle, should you have an open mind towards some opinion that you find morally disgusting. What would you say?
0: Uh, Well, I'm a philosopher, so I'm annoying, which means I'd probably ask, like, what do you mean by having an open mind?
1: Would you sit down and hear out the other side? Sure. So you would sit down and you would hear out the virulent racist, the horrible misogynist, the person who believes in bestiality, pedophilia, you would sit down and treat them as a sort of intellectual equal and listen to what they have to say.
0: Well, I guess it would depend <laughs> on the goal of the conversation.
1: All right. So well, how does that shake out for you?
0: Certainly, I wouldn't want to do something like this in a place where I would give these people a big platform to spout their hateful beliefs. So I wouldn't want to do it on a public television show. But if it were for the purpose of trying to...
1: Defeat them? Is that what you're going to say? Well... Think no, because them to I, them.
0: I think if someone comes to you as like a virulent racist, you're probably not going to defeat them in one conversation, but, but maybe...
1: you can defeat them in front of the public. <laughs> right?
0: No, probably not. I don't know. I think that like racists
1: are pretty stupid. I gotta be honest with you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they also may not find reason super compelling. So I'm not sure that my skill set would persuade them. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I've got family members who political opinions I deeply disagree with.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I would hear them out because I want to understand them better.
1: Right. But would you hear them out with an open mind, with the potential of being convinced? This is all pre-theoretical. I mean, you know.
0: There's this process that we go through. I mean, this is sort of exactly what I was talking about before, about how do you stake your position on things. I think there's a process that we go through as we learn. Mm -hmm. And part of that process is being open to persuasion. We don't want people to be dogmatic. I spend a lot of time with my students trying to convince them to be open-minded and fair-minded and not let their emotions get in the way and like being willing to listen to other people, even if you don't agree with them. One of the skills that we as philosophers have and bring to discourse is being able to hear out and understand other positions, and understanding that that is not the same as agreeing with someone.
1: So I think we're going to say yay to being open-minded, even yeah. if it's a disgusting position. Yeah. And so now I'm going to talk about some of the problems there uh, with that. Okay. And I think, by extension, the problem with free speech. So. Okay. If you remember. Almost two years ago, 2017, we had an episode called Tolerating the Nazi Next Door.
0: Oh uh, yes.
1: And I made the case, somewhat persuasively, I would say, <laughs> that we have, n- one, no obligation to tolerate intolerant people. That the whole point of being tolerant is that it gives us some social good and intolerance in general and intolerant people in particular cut against That social good. And so we have no obligation to be tolerant of them. And in extreme cases, we actually have a responsibility to fight against them. And I want to say that's one end of this argument that we should not tolerate intolerant people, that we actually have a responsibility to society to protect ourselves from the real harm that's caused by intolerant positions like racism and sexism and classism and all other sorts of very actionable and violent forms of ideology. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of that so far, just from the context of should you have an open mind?
0: So, for the good of society, we should not tolerate intolerant people or like hateful mm-hmm. speech. So, what is the question? That Does that sound so if, okay to me? Or
1: If I'm not supposed to tolerate intolerant people, I have to have a closed mind to them. I can't say I don't mm. tolerate you, but I still have an open mind to this whole Nazism. Right. <laughs> I can't say, yeah, I'm going to protect equal opportunity for all people in our country and at the same time say... But um, this white nationalism, you might have a point here. (laughs) Right. So it seems that the paradox of tolerance on the one hand and having an open mind cut against each other. Mm -hmm. And so right off the bat, what do you think about that?
0: There is, I think, a virtue in being open minded, as I've said. But I think that there are certain opinions that, as they come out, like we recognize them as being inconsistent or in great conflict with one or more of our values. And it's being like, oh, I recognize what this person is saying, and I've already made up my mind about this. And unless this person is saying something new or different about that, or in a way that would be appealing to my other values or my sense of reason or whatever whatever, then it's like a foregone conclusion of what I think about this. It's like someone saying, you know, here, do you want like a liverwurst? I'm like, no, I don't like liverwurst. I'm like, well, I'll try it. And I'm like, well, I've already tried it and I've tried it a couple of times. I've decided I, I don't like it. And they're like, well, let me cook it up in a different way and see if you like it then. And I can't imagine a situation in which white supremacy would ever connect or drive with my values. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do think that you're right in that saying, like, if we're not going to tolerate those people, that is in conflict with being open-minded. Yeah. I guess it's just a matter of not tolerating someone. What exactly does that look like? Does that mean not allowing them to speak? Does that mean ostracizing them from society? Does that mean, Mm -hmm. what does it look like
1: exactly? That's going to be the meat of the episode. Okay. But before we do that, how do you pick out the intolerant person? If you go to like 1930s Germany, you would hear a story of how these intolerant Jews are threatening the lives of innocent Aryan babies. Mm -hmm. And that tolerating the Jews, allowing them to speak, allowing them to have a social status in society is actually what we would consider what they did. So, Mm -hmm. I I guess the nut of the issue here is how would you choose that? And the minute you can't have confidence in how you choose which one is who, now I think you really are in this position of the nuclear weapon you have in being intolerant of intolerant people cuts against open-mindedness because your open-mindedness is by definition, not making a decision until you've heard the evidence. And so it seems like this is just a whole bunch of really fun philosophical chatter with no practical application.
0: I mean, the other problem is the question that you asked, like who decides which opinion should not be tolerated? Right,
1: (laughs) and that should worry us. Right. So I'm gonna go through one solution first And then I'm gonna tell you why it sucks. Okay. And then I'm gonna give you my actual solution. Well, it's always important to know why the wrong solutions don't work. Okay. So I think the answer a lot of people would say, if a child asks their parent, mommy, how do I do this? They'll say something like this. It's a kind of balance that you have in the inside of your heart. You know when to listen to someone and you know when to stand up to them. And your gut will help you figure it out intuitively. Mm. That's what most people kind of say, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, sure.
1: And I think that's a completely useless answer.
0: I mean, it's like the Aristotle's like, well, you have to do it in the right way, at the right moment, for the right reason, in the right circumstance. And, you know, it's different for every person in every circumstance. And you're like, well, that's great, but that doesn't actually help me.
1: Why did I buy this book? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've always wanted to say when I read that passage. It's like, right. why the fuck did I buy this book? So I think that's a useless answer because it doesn't actually help people move forward and make a decision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the solution I think is actually true is to say, one, that having an open mind isn't actually about being convinced by reason. We don't have open minds because somehow reason is gonna come inside and convince us. Mm. We don't have open minds because the right thing is in the air, and if your mind is open, it will then drop into your head, and now you have the right answer.
0: Mm.
1: Having an open mind, and this is gonna be so trite, I would not blame anyone for making fun of me for saying this. (laughs) Having an open mind is, about allowing what is already within you to develop so you can become who you will be. And I know that's very Yoda-ish. So let me break that down for a second. Okay. I don't actually think we're convinced by reason.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: And I'll just say, I'm with a lot of other people on that. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. not just some crazy person on the corner, right?
0: I think you've offered an argument like that in lots of our previous episodes.
1: Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think reason comes in and does any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's part of it. We're not completely irrational. We're not like random robots that just hit the walls in different moments of the day. There's a rhythm to our thinking, but we're not actually actually... actually overpoweringly convinced by reason. Instead, we have these little kind of seeds inside of us Mm. and we can develop them or we can hide and run from them. But in the end, having an open mind is about going out into the world and allowing what is within yourself already to develop. Now I know that's kind of abstract, so I wanna give an example. And then maybe you can give an example if, if you think there's something similar in your life. Okay. I ever tell you the reason I left the Catholic church? No. This is the craziest story. It's not, I mean, it's not a horrible story. It's just a crazy story. So, I myself am not gay. At the time, I didn't know any gay people. I'm sure that there were gay people in my life, but they just weren't out. You know, it was kind of a time to be quiet about being gay in the Puerto Rican community. I didn't know any gay people, but I remember such virulent meanness. From so many of the people in my local parish against gay people, they would say things like they're out to take over the world <laughs> and like, they're horrible hedonists. I mean, they use different language, all these horrible things. And I remember just being viscerally disgusted by the meanness of these people talking about gays who I didn't even know. And at that moment, I could not continue. I was actually in high school. I could not continue to be part of a group and participate in a group that believed these things. Wow. Well. Did that come out of thin air? Did that come out of the ether? Did I sit down and write a syllogism about human rights and every human has a right and sexual orientation is? A- no, I didn't do any of that shit. What happened was I was raised in a church and a faith with a gospel belief that said certain things about character and about how you should treat each other. And I saw the inconsistency, the internal inconsistency coming out of these other people in my group. And that developed into my position that I couldn't be part of this group anymore. There was something already within me that nurtured by having an open mind. I wasn't just closed off and saying, well, you know i I think that's a disgusting thing and i'm just going to be closed-minded and never think about it and never think that they have any kind of rights or freedom or anything i had an open mind to the world and from what i already believed i could develop a new position Mm. which became the position what i became that's what i'm trying to say when i talk about what an open mind really is what do you think of that
0: Well, it's interesting because you said that you felt open-mindedness didn't have really anything to do with reason, but it seems to me that reason did play a role for you. It expressed itself as disgust. Maybe that was sort of the quick emotional response. Mm -hmm. This sucks. But it was because of an internal inconsistency, right?
1: Yeah, I think reason has a role, but I don't think we're convinced by reason. What happens when you have an open mind is not so much that you're exposed to something and because you're open, it goes inside of you. It's that by having an open mind, by being open to the world, you're able to further develop what is already inside of you. If I didn't have any of that larger background in understanding character and empathy and seeing how people's reactions really show what's underneath them, I probably wouldn't have been convinced by their Mm -hmm. meanness that this was not a group I wanted to belong to. Having an open mind is about clarifying what you already believe, and that is how you can make steps that over time look like you've changed your mind in some way. It's not some just reason hitting you over the head.
0: Right. It's about understanding what the real values are for you and where those values contradict with your current belief structure and maybe would align more closely with a different belief structure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Can you think of something like that in your life?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you gave the example of leaving the Catholic Church and it being about homosexuality, because that was actually a, a very big reason why I left the Christian Church. It was the same, similar sort of thing. But it was a combination of things, because I did I was meeting gay people. Mm-hmm. And also, there was a, a woman who lived down the hall from me in my dorm room my freshman year, and she was raised Unitarian Universalists. So she did not believe in Jesus. And I remember Mm -hmm. talking with her. I was in a philosophy class. I was getting very confused about homosexuality. (laughs) And I had this conversation with her where she was just like, well, I think gay people are are, fine. And yeah, human beings, exactly. Right. And it was clear to me that she had done much more thinking about it than I had. Mm -hmm. You know, mine was like, well, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to think about this. So I'll just go to my Bible. My Bible will tell me what to think. And she had clearly actually done the work determine what she believed and she also didn't believe in jesus and i thought like well here's a person who seems really smart and thoughtful and kind and attentive to other people and according to my faith she's gonna burn in hell um (laughs) and like that just doesn't (laughs) seem true to me like i don't understand how that could possibly be and that combination of things was really sort of the beginning
1: of the end for me and for me Mm. you could have had a closed mind about that like i know tons of you know kids that go through all four years five years of college, and they're closed-minded the whole time. They're just going to believe what they want to believe, but you had an open mind. At the same time, I don't think it was just this one classmate broke into your skull and put friendliness towards gay in there. There were a whole bunch of deeper, Mm. earlier things in your life that allowed you to have a bridge, and part of being open-minded was being exposed to this larger world, and you made from that what you actually really are, which is a person who believes X, Y, and Z, and you developed. So that's what I think having an open mind is about, and that's why I think it's so important. And so when I see college campuses throughout the country disinviting speakers or having protests and not allowing people to offer their positions on matters, Mm -hmm. I'm deeply, deeply worried. Not just because it's college and that's where you're supposed to do that sort of stuff, but I worry that even people who believe the same goddamn things I believe, by having a closed mind are not developing into who they are. They're stultifying themselves, and their closed-mindedness will hurt them.
0: That's so interesting. Okay, so the way you're seeing this as having an open mind doesn't necessarily mean letting yourself be convinced in terms of, I'm open, and I blow with the wind. If that argument takes me, then I'm over there, and if this argument takes me, then I'm over here. Instead, you see it as much more of a, like, I am open to developing into the person that I am, and that person is an expression of my values and i'm going to figure out what those values are through conversation and conflict and pushback and discussion and dialogue
1: living life yes the other way to see it is adolf (laughs) hitler comes to campus and now all of a sudden the entire campus are, are nazis right the idea is having an open mind allows The Adolf Hitler virus to get into these people's heads, and now they're all little mini Nazis, and we have to protect against that. And so we can't invite Adolf Hitler to campus. And I wanna say, look, man, it's not like everyone was really cool with peace and love, and then all of a sudden Adolf Hitler Mm -hmm. came in and they got convinced. It was an unhealthy society in many ways, and this was a person who allowed that to develop. Yes, you know, the the opposite end of this is you can't tolerate that in a certain way. But I want to say it is bad to hold back, to have these closed minds, not to engage in open-minded discussion and engagement with other people, even when their positions are disgusting,
0: that's interesting. So that does seem to bump up against this I mean it's just so timely, right? For what we're dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have family members who like I said, I disagree with some of their fundamental political beliefs. maybe because of that, I feel like I am I don't know, I'm really torn on this cuz on the one hand, I hear you and I'm like, yeah. I mean, I still go to Thanksgiving dinner every year and like granted my family doesn't talk about politics. We've learned that, you know, also we're Midwesterners, so it would be it would be impossible polite.
1: Oh, I have something to say about that. (laughs) Keep going.
0: I mean, I think in a way it's a responsibility to try and convince those who are close to you of your progressive beliefs, but also family dynamics are being what they are. Whatever. Let's not talk about my uncles. Um... So on the one hand, I understand what it is to be in a room and share a space and love and have relationships with people who have very different thoughts and beliefs than I do. I actually would really like to have some of these political conversations with them, in part because that foundation of love and care and affection is there with them. I'm like, look, if I can't talk to you about why you support Trump, then there's no hope for any of us.
1: That's the place to be open minded. When Trump is burning books, that's not the place to be open-minded. That's right. the place to stand up and say, look, man, no. But at a dinner where you know you love your uncle, you love your, your, your racist uncle, and your mm-hmm. racist uncle loves you even though he hates your politics. Right. That is the safe place to engage openly with other people. And yet we don't do it. We actually do the flip. The, the almost
0: Exactly. The opposite. We do do the opposite. And I know that some people are... Mm -hmm. They just have a family culture where they go home and yell and scream about politics. And that's just sort of what it means to have Thanksgiving. But like I said, I'm from the Midwest where we are passive aggressive and polite. So we talk about other things and pass each other the peas. And we do, like you said, freak out and yell and scream when it's on Twitter with people I don't know in a public square or in spaces where there are not people that have that foundation of love and affection to bind us together because then we're allowed to be the biggest assholes we want to be because the stakes are low.
1: Here's where we are right now. I want us to be open-minded. I think it's so important. At the same time, I don't want us to tolerate horrible people. It seems to cut against each other. I don't know what the (laughs) fuck to do. So. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Oh, we're getting there. We're almost done. Okay. So. The two biggest problems I see with being open-minded towards, you know, these disgusting people, (laughs) I like saying that, sorry, All right. (laughs) is one, it normalizes them. So you bring Adolf Hitler to campus, he's not just some crazy Austrian who's trying to run a beer hall push, he's the statesman. By giving someone a platform, you feel, at least, like you're amplifying them, Mm -hmm. you're making Mm -hmm. them respectable. And the second is kind of a consequence of that. When you have a space and you normalize these horrible people by giving them the chance to discuss their positions, by giving them the respectability of equal intellectual treatment, you, in a sense, marginalize the people who are vulnerable to them, right? So, like, you have some really horrible racist come on campus or go to your family Thanksgiving or talk in your church and say horrible things about some group, members of that group feel like, holy fuck, where's everybody on my side? How can they literally say things that endanger my, like, literal life, not my social life and how I feel, but, like, the, I think a few years ago, the whole transgender thing was a question like this. You know, you were having people saying horrible, horrible mm-hmm. things about transgendered uh, community, and you're literally endangering these people's lives. So that seems to be the kind of, what I would call the danger of open-mindedness.
0: That seems right. If you give people a platform, and we've seen that play out. Trump starts in his mouth. And hate crimes go up, you know, there are real consequences,
1: right? And like real crimes, like people being shot in multiple places. Yes. So I think when I hear this, what I often hear from people is about kind of space and security and feeling comfortable And what I take from that is there is a big difference between the public space, as you said, and private spaces. And so I think we've already covered this, that in the public space, I think we have to take a strong stand where we will respect each other. And that strong stand of respecting each other means we have to have a Mm -hmm. strong hand against intolerance. The moment you allow intolerance to have its place in the public sphere, you're actually working for intolerance. And that's kind of the point we made in the paradox of tolerance Mm -hmm. in that Nazis episode. But the flip side is, I think in private spaces, we have a responsibility to be Mm -hmm. open-minded, even when it's uncomfortable. And so when I hear college students say, I don't want a speaker to come to our campus, what I'm actually hearing them say in my head is, I don't feel our campus is really safe Mm. enough to have this conversation. I think you should have a faith in the security of your place that you can encounter people who are different than you, even disgustingly different from you. And when I hear people not have that, when I hear people say they don't feel like they can talk to their family about sensitive subjects, what I'm really hearing are people who don't feel that safety.
0: So are you suggesting that I don't actually feel safe with my uncles at Thanksgiving?
1: <laughs> yes, I think if you genuinely felt safe and secure in the comfort of this private space that you would actually not feel uncomfortable having an open mind and all of that entails, you would feel comfortable enough to be open to what this other person is saying and comfortable enough opening yourself to say what you believe and that anytime you're in these private spaces and you have this fear it is because frankly you don't feel safe and so the problem isn't so much about whether or not you should allow someone to speak or not what it really is is the insecurity that we feel in private spaces
0: because it's really vulnerable I don't think that my family members know me all that well mm-hmm. and I don't know them all that well and if we start talking about things that will heighten people's emotions and make them feel angry and then they'll kind of show this part of themselves or I will show this part of myself that is more personal, more human, open to scrutiny, able to be judged, able to be evaluated, like staking a claim that is unpopular in the room or whatever it is. It's like All of it is very vulnerable, and it kind of breaks the unwritten rule about how we relate to each other in my family. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It would really shake up the dynamics, I think. And I don't feel this way. I feel fairly confident that, you know, I've had Thanksgiving with my family for many, 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 many years, And I feel confident that even if Mm -hmm. we disagree, I would, you know, still want to do it again next year, in part because I am a philosopher and I understand how these things go. And I understand that we can disagree and still love each other. But I don't think everyone sees it that way.
1: But remember the stakes here about not having this open-minded, bi-directional conversation with people. Yeah. It stunts you that you can't develop. Part of it is maybe this is what holds back your racist uncle's from growing. I don't think they're gonna become wonderful anti-racist activists, but they could develop in a certain way. And it keeps you from developing, right? There may be a place in you that needs to develop in a sense of being able to have difficult conversations with people you love while at the same time calling them into account. And that never gets to happen. And this is the safest of spaces, right?
0: Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. So that
1: just sucks empirically. but (laughs) there is a limitation to what I've just said. I think what I've just said so far is okay, but there is one big limitation, which is that spaces are obviously in a spectrum. So like downtown by Radio City Music Hall, that's obviously a public space with your husband or wife in bed is a private space, but all sorts of spaces run the gamut. Having Thanksgiving dinner is private in the sense it's your family, but it's not like only your close, close family. It might be people you only see once a year. So in a sense, it's kind of closer to the mm. public space mm. well, than yeah, being with your husband. Well, yeah, I mean, your yes, it's definitely closer to public than it is being with my husband.
0: But I have this question that your comment about college campuses, it sounds like you're talking mm-hmm. about inviting a speaker to a public campus as like being a private sphere, right? Like we should be able to tolerate this kind of conversation in a private sphere. But that seems more analogous to being a Public conversation or a public platform to me.
1: It's on the spectrum, one. It's on the spectrum in the sense that if it was completely public, if it was just public, like as public could be, if it was the most public thing, then why would people say we're not going to invite him to our campus? There's a sense of ownership when people talk about their campus. There's a sense of, I may not be gay, but I don't want my gay classmate feeling horrible because this person came here saying horrible things. I may not be Muslim, but I don't want this white nationalist who talks about replacement theory saying horrible things that hurts my classmate. If it was a truly public space, we wouldn't care. We do have a sense of ownership. Now, is it family Thanksgiving dinner? No. Is it being in bed with your husband? No. But it's on the spectrum here. And that ends up being one of the problems we're facing when we talk about whether we should be intolerant of intolerant people or open-minded to them. We want to treat it as if there's some formula. I would say the private sphere is the appropriate place for conversation. And there's an appropriate place for standing up for the social good of including everybody. That would be the public space. But in our everyday lives, we actually live in a spectrum of places. And that balance between knowing how much to be open-minded and how much not to tolerate intolerant people is really us trying to figure out uh, mm. where does this thing lie? So like a speaker coming to campus to an auditorium mm-hmm. is public-ish, right? But a speaker coming into my classroom as a guest speaker, is much more intimate. This is a class I've had for 16 weeks. We've gotten to know each other. Hopefully we've written some papers that pass muster. People have given (laughs) positions on other things. It feels much safer to talk.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just think about vulnerability again. I think that those private spheres... Part of the reason that that sense of safety maybe feels threatened is because it feels like the stakes are higher. Because we are a member of this group. It is a small community that we feel like we are a part of. And the stakes are higher because if we disagree and we disagree to the point where it's irreparable, then the group has fractured. Or worse yet, one person becomes fractured from the group and you lose that community. Whereas in the public sphere, it's like you don't feel like you are part of any particular community in terms of like, I belong here. And if these people left me, I would be sort of out in the cold. True.
1: True. I think that should be flipped Yeah. in the public sphere. We don't belong to any group. So we have to do what it takes to make sure every group is protected. Yeah. It's because we don't belong to any specific group or have complete ownership of the public space that we have to band together to fight against people who would hurt the weakest of us. So that's why I think we should just be completely intolerant of intolerant people. In the public space, Mm -hmm. but in the private space, yes, it's dangerous. It's vulnerable. You're scared. But the stakes are higher. You may never become who you really are if you don't take the chance to show who you really are. And if you don't take them because you're afraid, which I understand people are afraid like that you're never gonna become who you're gonna become. And I think that's very sad, and I think that's actually worse than Mm. social ostracization.
0: This pulls on me. I think that you've hit on something here. That seems right to me. We ought to be more courageous in those small, intimate moments. Not only because of the things that you've said about becoming who you are, in those small spaces, we're also much more likely to have productive conversations Because there is caring and there is community Mm -hmm. and there is a sense of wanting to keep whatever binds the group together together. And so we're going to be able to have this conversation while also knowing that we're not going to try and fracture this group, that we're able to do better thinking because we can do what, you know, you and I try and do here every other week, which is listen to each other even if we disagree even if we think each other's positions are bad or stupid and yet still be able to come back and talk and care for each other and you know see our friendship not only survive but deepen and flourish and I think that's what happens when people are willing to take this risk and have these conversations even if they don't end up agreeing they at least understand each other a little bit better and in fact the group can become closer and tighter.
1: I think I can't really say it better than that I'll just end with this is the bookend of tolerating the Nazi next door, Mm. the same degree that you got to be tough and strong in the public sphere to protect all, you have to be open and tender and vulnerable in the private sphere. Because if you don't do both, you're actually in trouble.
0: I love that. It seems like good words to live by. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. (laughs)
0: All right, listeners, tell us what you think about this. Do you agree with Jose? What did we miss? Please come let us know at thinkhardpodcast.com. You can leave a comment or feedback for us there at our still fairly new website. So don't go away. We're going to talk about what we've been thinking about since last episode. But before we do, we're going to talk about Audible. Audible has the largest library in the world. And right now they're offering Think Hard listeners one free book to start. So, Jose, you have a recommendation for what our listeners might like to listen to.
1: D, if listeners have paid attention to these bots when I do them, I always try to pick something that <laughs> makes what I've just said seem bad. Like, I always try to give a balanced thing. And today I'm going to do the same thing, but in a weird way. I'm going to suggest Kant's short piece, What is Enlightenment? So it's a very short piece. It's one of Audible's mini pieces. You you actually get cool. it for free. It's a lending library in Audible. It's actually an incredibly well-written, popular, yeah. accessible. It's nothing like what he writes <laughs> in general. And he is trying to explain the process of enlightenment. Oh, yes. And the reason I picked it is because he has a very similar argument to mine. <laughs> oh, how about this? I have a very similar argument to his.
0: <laughs> Kant did come first. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: And very quickly, his spiel was that in enlightenment, you have a responsibility to carry out the work of society. Yes. So that's where you have to follow your orders, follow your orders as a soldier, follow your orders as a treasurer and a tax collector. But you also have another part, the very same person, has a responsibility to carry out your intellectual work. And so if you disagree with the state, you should carry out the orders of the state. But at the same time, through your intellectual work, and he didn't just mean professional intellectuals. He just means like every kind of thinking person, argue your position. And his kind of hope there was that. By carrying out your orders, you keep society running. But by arguing in the intellectual world, if your society has gone off the rails and gone into something wrong, you can fix that through this kind of faith in talking and figuring Mm -hmm. things out. Now, this sounds a lot like what I said. I kind of have a slightly different position, but it's kind of a lot like what I said. Now, the reason I pick it out is it's a great piece. Anyone can understand. it. You don't even have to be a philosopher. You don't even have to be a college graduate. It's like very, very, very basically written. His argument becomes the predecessor, in my opinion, but I'm pretty sure in many people's opinion, of the German tradition of, I was only following orders. And it ends in Nuremberg, the Nuremberg Trials. So here is this very well-written argument by Kant. I kind of think a lot of it is right, and I was inspired Mm -hmm. by a lot of it. My position is a little different, but it ends up leading to like the most horrible things. People Mm. just blindly following their orders and it became cover for that. And so I think it's a good read for everyone to see the kind of dangers of blindly following what your society tells you to do.
0: I love that. Thank you, Jose. And you can listen to that right now for free. You just go to thinkhardpodcast.com slash audible and you can listen to that or any of the other of thousands of titles they have to offer. And after 30 days, you'll get one audiobook a month for fourteen ninety five a month. You can get 30% off the price of any additional audiobook purchases after that and you can cancel at any time. And your books are yours to keep, even if you cancel. So just go to thinkhardpodcast.com slash Audible. Thinkhardpodcast.com slash Audible. All right, Jose, this is a part of the show where we talk about what we've been thinking about since the last episode. So what have you been thinking about?
1: Danielle, I've been thinking of this article in the New York Times, Need Extra Time on Tests? It Helps to Have Cash by Dana Goldstein and Yugal K. Patel. This is actually a long piece. I would almost say it's like almost a magazine piece. It's very well written. And it is about time accommodations for standardized exams. Certain people with learning disabilities are You know, you can go to the doctor and you get some letter and then you go fill out a piece of paper and you're given extra time on your standardized exam. And I want to just say right off the bat, that's a great thing. And I think it's an accomplishment of our society that we have extended education and higher education Mm -hmm. to all people. Very good. But it is abused the fuck out. (laughs) Mm. And I just want to very quickly, two of the things that really stood out in this. It's a great piece. One was... In Weston, Massachusetts, where the median household income is $220,000, the rate of students who get this accommodation is 18%. Eight times that of Danbury, Connecticut, a city 30 minutes north. What ends up happening is that wealthier Mm -hmm. people get this for their kids, and then they take the SATs and they get a higher score, and then they get into better colleges. So in the top 1% of income, that school income group, 5.8% 5.8% of students get these accommodations. In the bottom 1%, 1.5% of students get it. Now, it's a great read. It'll tell you about all these things. And obviously there are many people who need these accommodations. It's the abuse that people are really not happy with. But this is one of the things that I picked this.
0: Yeah, it makes you wonder if those people, I'm sure some of it is just the system being abused, but I also Mm -hmm. wonder, is perhaps the rate of people who would legitimately need accommodations the same across except people from wealthier families are just in the same way that correlation... Because those people, in the same way that like people of a certain income are more likely to take vitamins, are also more likely to like, you know, do things for their kids in this way. And so, I don't know. Any thoughts about that?
1: 5% need it. And it doesn't matter about their income. But the rich people get the actual doctor's letter and go through all that right that kind of thing yeah well one thing that they were saying was that like amongst wealthy people it's like an industry like you know who to go to to get it mm-hmm. there's a worked out thing it was tangently related to the recent college admission scandals because one of the strategies those people use was to get special accommodations so then test answers could be changed because The person was getting accommodations. So it's like a whole kind of thing. The reason I picked it for this week was for years, there have been horrible, horrible people who want to talk to me about how affirmative action is wrong because African-American and Latino students perform worse on these exams Mm. and meritocracy. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I refuse to talk to these people. I do not have an open mind with these people. I don't want to hear their bullshit. They have numbers. I don't want to look at them. If I had engaged those people and followed what the numbers would have been, I could have actually gone through an argument that would have led me to figuring this out three years ago. (laughs) But I didn't because I already made up my mind and I wasn't going to have a space for these people. And it held me back Mm -hmm. this whole time we were talking about all these things. Rich unfortunately. White people are taking advantage of this to get better things. And it has been completely absent from our conversation, in part because one side doesn't want to hear what the other side's talking about.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good illustration of why these conversations are important, why open minds are important. Well, thank you, Jose. Yeah. This week, I have been thinking about a TV show that has just been delighting me so very much. (laughs) It's called Pen 1-5. It is about two girls in seventh grade. It's a, the brainchild of Maya Erkstein and Anna Conkle. And they play versions of themselves in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's so delightful about this is that the cast is all junior high age kids. They're all like 12, 13 14 year olds, Mm -hmm. except for these two actresses who are like 30 and they are playing 12 year olds, Mm -hmm. which sounds like it would be terrible, but somehow it works. It is that such awkward time, seventh grade, and they are managed to capture it. It's kind of like the live action female version of Big Mouth, for any of you who are fans of Big Mouth, Mm. Um, the animated series about junior high. But it's like dealing with like the issues that I just so identified with it, like remembering all this stuff from junior high, kissing and people who were smoking and just the wacky conversations that happened and the awkward Way that people talk about things, and it sounds like it might be terrible, but man, does it work! And it is just so funny and so delightful. And of course, pen one five looks like penis if you, uh, you know, use your imagination, and it's just so good, and wild, and weird, and wonderful. So, I'm really enjoying it, and I highly recommend.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I have not watched it, I have heard about the controversy about it. So. I'd be very interested. Maybe this, this would be something to talk about.
0: Oh, I didn't know there was a controversy about it. What's the controversy?
1: The sexual content of it. Yeah. I mean, there's no sex show. It's not porn, but there are sexual situations. Well, people feel uncomfortable about um, small children who aren't small children showing uh, things that seem sexual. And it's, it's a whole thing. I've never seen the show, but I've read articles about this.
0: Interesting, Right.
1: Now, what's crazy is I hate TV, uh-huh. but something like that... Might actually think it's an art form. Yeah. If they actually pushed it. Because it seems to me like a creative jump.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I haven't seen anything quite like it. I think the genius of it is that you are able to take adult actors and have them do things that you would never have a 12-year-old actor do, you know? Including some of the sexual content, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, they also, like, have to get really creative when they have, like, one of the characters, for example, like, kisses a boy. And the way they do it is by, like, cutting back and forth between the young boy and the older Mm -hmm. actor and just doing like close-ups of their mouths and of their faces and like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just very creatively done and i think it really works
1: yes to me that would actually be an an achievement the creativeness of it yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah i recommend it so Pen one five, you can watch the whole thing right now on Hulu. It's a Hulu original series. Great. So go watch it and tell us what you think. All right. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please come visit us at thinkhardpodcast.com, where you can find all of our archives and leave a comment or question for us there. Come to our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash thinkhardpodcast. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps other people find the show. And please tell your friends about us. Everyone should be listening to Think Hard. Thanks to our editor and engineer, Dan Short. You can find him at danisnotshort.com. Thanks to Ben Sound at bensound.com for the music for today's episode. You can follow Jose Muniz on Twitter at The Muniz, and you can follow me, Danielle Asusa, at Danielle Asusa, and you can follow Think Hard at Think Hard Pod. That's our show for today, and we'll be back again in two weeks. See ya!